0: This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis so far this season we've taken a look at some of the biggest ways racial bias plays out in the workplace from the excuses that companies make to justify the lack of diversity in their workforces to what white privilege and tone policing look like in the office As we move through some of these issues, it might be useful to think about the umbrella of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Diversity is getting more equal representation in your workplace. We touch on that in our episode about the so-called pipeline problem. Equity is making the playing field level for everyone, which we cover in our last episode about white privilege and tone policing at work. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, they are great primers on those topics. So now we're going to touch on inclusion, creating a culture where everyone feels like they are welcome as their authentic selves. Many companies focus too much on representation as the ultimate goal and forget about equity and inclusion. So they fail to retain the people that they've worked so hard to recruit. Equity and inclusion are crucial to building an anti-racist workplace that allows underrepresented people to thrive and move up. So today we're going to touch on some aspects of building an inclusive workplace, specifically what employers are really saying when they talk about hiring for culture fit and what code switching looks like at work and the toll that it takes. Joining me to help break down these topics is Dr. Courtney McClooney, Assistant Professor of Organizational Behavior at Cornell University. Dr. McClooney, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I think most people at this point at least have some idea of what code switching is, but specifically talking about it in the workplace. Can we start with some examples of what code switching looks like and sounds like at work? Sure.
1: I think it's it's a little difficult to fully identify what it looks and sounds like because this is one of those intracognitive sort of behaviors where the only person who is somewhat aware that they're code switching is typically the person who's doing it. But there are some examples that are a bit more public and can be you know, a detectable by observers. One, I think the easiest one is probably when people choose an English-sounding, white-sounding name to go by at work. So rather than having people address my first name, which may be in another language, someone from a different nation, I would say you can just call me me, mm. right? Or, or if someone has a Black-sounding name or a name that's not considered a stereotypical white name, they might go by a middle name or, or choose to use initials instead. I think that's one of the more observable ways of, of seeing code switching in practice. It could also happen by voice. So again, I think code switchers are really expert in how they code switch and when and, and making sure that if they are changing their tone of voice or their vernacular, that they sort of keep that switch on for as long as possible. However, there are times when you may slip, especially if you're exhausted or um, if something has happened in society and you really just want to talk about it openly in your natural speaking voice and speaking tone. And so you might catch people talking in different types of vernaculars, using different words or verbs when they're communicating with someone who looks like them and, and maybe is commiserating about a similar issue, as opposed to speaking with someone who's of more power Uh, which can both be hierarchical power, like your boss, but also in this society could be white people who have a different cultural experience than than people of color.
0: I think that's really interesting. And it seems obvious once you say it. But I think, you know, a lot of um, people who have never had to code switch are, are maybe finding that as news of like, Well, you can't identify it because you've always only heard it, right? You can't identify that the code is being switched, that your tone of voice is being switched or your mannerisms or the way you interact with people because that switch is always on. You don't see the switch turned off. And I think that's what people kind of don't realize. Maybe the, the struggle that's going on behind it because they never see that other side of it. They don't even know it's taking
1: place, right? Right. And I just remembered one of the more obvious examples (laughs) of how you can see code switching possibly in action, and that is with hair and Mm. appearance overall. And this is something that delves both into gender and and race, at least what we've observed in research, where a certain looking woman is is preferred in most workplaces. That is an attractive, thin, blonde hair, um, makeup on what's considered the epitome of feminine. At work and it tends to uh, follow the features of a eurocentric woman and age also interacts with this as well at certain points women who look older are also ostracized in various ways but for women of color even if they're young it's really difficult for them to embody this eurocentric ideal of, of what you should look like at work so one of the ways that we've observed code switching in our research is is mainly with women but but men can also do this and that's changing their hairstyle uh, so I tend to wear my hair in natural styles, but I remember worrying about job interviews, meeting people for the first time and what my hair looks like and how it is styled. Black hair styles and Afrocentric textures have been associated with things like aggression and lack of confidence and professionalism. And we've seen over and over with resume bias studies showing people pictures of of Black women with either straightened hairstyles, which is more similar to Eurocentric looks, versus wearing Afrocentric hairstyles like Afros or locks or, or braids, that there is more receptivity and likelihood of hiring someone if they have straightened hairstyles, so we we do observe that as well, and I and I love to change my hair a lot at work, and and that is a form of switching, right? Of switching your cultural identity expression.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting part of it that actually is is pretty easy to see in the ways that you know we talked about this in in our last episode about the definition of what is professional and how the definition of professional is white and has been built around white culture we've actually seen in some workplaces that have you know a lot of the workplaces that we cover are are more casual and a lot of workplaces are getting more casual But in some industries like um, I've seen it in investment banking, it's been well documented in the military that they actually codify what is acceptable black hairstyles and locks and natural hairstyles were deemed unprofessional, unacceptable. And I believe the military just recently, like in the last six years, changed their dress code guidelines to allow natural hairstyles. But but yeah, I mean, it was literally codified that you had to try to make yourself code switch and look white in order to be, quote unquote, professional. So, I mean, we've we've touched on this a little and it and it probably feels pretty obvious. But what is driving this necessity to code switch at work? And what is the kind of like cost if you don't?
1: A lot of what you've said around professionalism is certainly what's driving this necessity to code switch at work, where especially if we're going into white collar occupations, more professional jobs, the main people who have been allowed to work in that space over time and, and define what it means to be a professional or to work in the space, look a certain way, uh, have a very similar upbringing way and manner of speaking and have defined the norms. So for everyone else, if you'd like to fit in here and and actually meets that cultural expectation of fit, we still do hire people who remind us of ourselves. Uh, The similarity attraction phenomenon and paradigm is is deeply embedded in our human psyche. We tend to attribute a lot of positive traits and qualities to people who look like us and, and remind us of ourselves. And if a group in power has been in power for a long time, that means for all the other groups who are hoping to enter these workspaces, they might need to adjust everything that's unique about their culture in order to match this other culture at work. The cost of not doing so range from the initial hiring phase, some work done by Sonia Kang and her colleagues in 2016 showed this phenomenon of Black and Asian students whitening their resumes. And it was only by taking out any identifier of race, whether that was your name or some of the organizations that you may have been a part of in school, that increased their likelihood of receiving callbacks for jobs. So, so the cost of not code switching at the job entry stage is that you probably will not get a job. When it comes to onboarding and socializing into the work environment, you could run up against people feeling like we made the wrong decision. They're not, they're actually not a good fit here, or face pressures to assimilate along the way, being told that we just don't know. If we like you, we don't know if we're friends with you yet. And and that can, of course, spill over into performance evaluations. Unfortunately, there's been evidence that Black people, if they're late to work, they are penalized more heavily than, than white people who are also late to work. A lot of the other behaviors that we consider unprofessional are taxed even harder on white women and people of color as opposed to white men who engage in similar behaviors. So not adjusting or modifying how you present yourself at work has consequences throughout the entire career stage, and especially when it comes to promotions. As we've noticed with most organizations, the closer you get to the top, the more homogenous the workforce gets. And I think that's by design. We tend to promote people who we think has the potential to do great in leadership, especially if the company is successful. And it's really hard to tell people to change what has been working for a long time. The only time we really see a change, we see the promotion of white women and people of color is usually when the company is failing and we have to try something new and different. And if it fails, then we at least have someone to pin it on. And this is known as the glass cliff phenomenon, but it's really hard to convince people when things are going so smoothly to change up their model of promotion and retention.
0: We actually have a episode coming later this season about the glass cliff and about that phenomenon of setting women and people of color up to to fail when, uh, you know, when a company is failing. But you touched on something that I, I wanted to talk about, too, that we see a lot in hiring language. We see a lot of companies talk about it and the, the way they talk about it is we have such a great company culture. We really need the right type of person to fit in. And they call it culture fit. So we're looking to hire for a culture fit. And, you know, and they, like I said, they cl- kind of cloak it in this virtuous speak of like, you know, we just need the right type of person to like, that gets us. And it's code switching is kind of a symptom of, you know, of being able to fit into the company culture itself. But culture fit and, and looking to hire for culture fit is kind of, Code in itself for some of these things that that you're talking about. When when a company says culture fit, what are they really saying?
1: Oh yeah, that's a that's a great question. Honestly, it's organizational cultures do create this ideal worker in mind. So all organizations, all professions, when we think about this notion of culture fit. What we're really describing is this ideal worker, the ideal person who we think will do a great job here, cause a little issue in terms of not wanting to change things, but really can just get in, get along, fit right in, and and not give us any headaches as, as management. Culture fit has this disproportionate effect on people from lower income backgrounds. Lauren Rivera at Northwestern has documented this over time that whenever companies use terms like fit, what they're really doing is reproducing the same model of of what they've seen work over time without creating room for other options. And and I love that you were framing culture fit and code switching. They kind of are this chicken and an egg argument where if you code switch well enough, you're also reinforcing the belief that this culture is great and people can fit into it and we don't need to change it because- companies may not be aware that what they're actually doing is forcing people to assimilate via code switching via covering and other forms of impression management strategies that a lot of marginalized people engage in, which is reducing their ability to be authentic at work, increasing their cognitive emotional load and and taxing them in various ways. But, but at the same time, by choosing to code switch, you're also reinforcing the belief that this culture is one in which I can fit in. So it's very challenging to, to figure out where to intervene in, in this cycle. Um, but yes, culture fit, I think, is one of the dominant reasons why people code switch in the first place. And it's something that a lot of companies won't, won't admit to having, but they do.
0: And I think, it, you know, it ties back to what you're saying about, well, if a company's successful, they, you know, can easily say, well, what's wrong with it? You know, we've hired all of these 20 something white guys from Stanford and we are making so much money and we are doing so well. And it, I think, makes it so that the company doesn't see its blind spots. You know, they don't see the blind spots of, well, if you had people from other backgrounds, you would think of different solutions, possibly think of different products, problems, solutions to those problems, ways to reach other audiences, you know, um, ways to reach your your customers that are not all 20 something white guys from Stanford. But yeah, I think I think when you when you look at a company and they're doing well and they think their their culture works well for them, it's hard for them to see, well, what's the disadvantage to it?
1: Yes. And I think this is been ag- aggregated or exaggerated in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. right? They, they've been called out. Tech companies have been called out for their lack of diversity for so long. And a lot of them still aren't releasing their diversity numbers because even within the company, as they hire people, as we've seen with what's been happening with some Google executives and other places, they segment and segregate their employees of color and did not create a clear path to leadership for them as well. So it it reinforces that belief that we have this larger culture fit, but if you're here, you don't quite fit that mold, we will put you in this other area. Oh, you'll be a great IT professional, but leadership, nah, let's leave that to the white men from Stanford, right? Mm -hmm. And, And everyone else, you just slot yourselves in where you fit into this broader culture. That gives companies an excuse to say we are diverse, but it doesn't allow us to observe the processes that not only leads to you hiring fewer non-white men, but also questions, why is it that you are hiring majority white men? I, I love being able to flip that question to companies. Whenever they say, what can we do to hire more people of color? So you need to start questioning what you're doing that is leading to more white men being here.
0: Mm-hmm. And a lot, a lot of times, you know, we touched on this in our, our episode about the so-called pipeline problem. A lot of times it's relying on who do we know, our own networks and and, you know, kind of that self-perpetuating cycle. I'd like to talk a little bit about what code switching looks like outside of the office, because this is not just a work only, you know, phenomenon. This is something that people of color do throughout their lives in different aspects can you touch on kind of the the origins of it and how people learn it growing up? Like, when does it start and when do you how do you practice it and when when do you start doing it? And, and also, I guess, maybe what the what the toll is kind of interpersonally and psychologically to have to be doing this all the time.
1: The term code switching itself comes from linguistic studies, and it essentially meant the switching between languages That people were noticing amongst multilingual, bilingual people that depending on who they were talking with, they would switch from, let's say, Spanish to English. Over time, cultural anthropologists started noticing that it wasn't merely switching between languages, but it was actually switching the formality of the conversation, whether or not you're using slang um, or speaking in what's considered more European style of a particular language, as opposed to other places where it might be considered a Creole variant of the language. From there, cross-cultural psychologists started noticing differences in how people interpret information, depending on if we're priming some aspect of their identity. Let's say if you're Asian American, and if we help you think more about being Asian, the words that come to mind the, the images, all of these things are, are switching for you as opposed to if we, we ask you to think to be more like an American. So this bicultural frame switching was another way of thinking about code switching at this intercognitive level And then social psychologists, and and that's sort of where my conversation around code switching came in, was looking at the social context and what features of one's environment would prompt them to change how they're speaking, how they're walking, how they dress, what sort of behavioral mannerisms they're engaging in depending on their environment. One of my colleagues and close collaborators on this work is Dr. Miles Durkee at the University of Michigan, and he actually studies code switching amongst adolescents and children, So we do find that it is part of a socialization strategy as people become acculturated to the U.S. And this not only happens with immigrants, this is also happening with minority groups in this country, where if education, um, government, all sorts of spheres of our country is really built around white people and white culture, you go to school, you learn how to speak as white people speak, and, and you learn how to read their books, et cetera. So this preparation of children on how do you enter and interact in white social spaces is really some of the beginnings and and ongoing development around code switching. And what Dr. Durkee found in his research with, I'd say, middle school to high school age children is students who are mastering code switching, they're able to switch how they sound, are actually accused of acting white and, and being more white acting than Uh, acting as an authentic member of their racial identity group. And this has lots of social consequences. As you can imagine, at that age, people are trying to identify what does it mean to be a woman, a girl, a a person of color, a a Black person. And if you're deviating from what we consider a really core aspect of this racial identity, then we're going to accuse you of being inauthentic, being fake, selling out, all, all these different sort of accusations coming up that has demonstrated in his longitudinal work, a lot of psychological distress that students feel over time of feeling as if they can't be authentic or they don't have an authentic cultural identity.
0: You know, you're saying there that kids are almost in a damned if you do damned if you don't situation, right? If you don't code switch and act white enough, then, you know, you you have all the penalties thereof. But if but then with your with your black peers, if you're if you are code switching, you're accused of acting too white.
1: Yes, it's, it's a really, it's a catch 22, right? Um, because the world, if it's dominated and controlled by white people, you do gain access to more education and things that you need, the more that you can assimilate into white culture. But the downside is you may not feel that you fit into the cultures that you are members of because we don't have access to power as black people, it's difficult for us to both want to be authentic, but also want to quote unquote, make it or, or be successful in this type of society. The one thing I'll add, you, you asked the question about the long-term effects of this. Mm-hmm. Dr. Durkey and I, along with our colleague at the Institute for Social Research, Dr. Maggie Hicken, Hicken, we're just now starting a, what will be a longitudinal study of the day-to-day experiences of code switching on your physical health. Mm. You think of code switching as an emotionally and cognitively taxing ordeal where in addition to doing your work, you're thinking about how it is that I'm presenting this information. Am I coming across as to insert stereotype of whatever group I belong to here? And all of that on top of performing at a high level in order to also avoid stereotypes is going to contribute to long-term burnout and exhaustion. So we're going to start to look at some of the physiological reactions to code switching over time. And I do think when we think about, you know, all the cardiovascular disease and stress-related illnesses that are plaguing Black communities and other communities of color, I think part of that is the stress of trying to figure out how to navigate a white world. Mm. Uh, Code switching could be a life-or-death situation when it comes to interactions with police, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, that... your body constantly being in fight or flight mode, this increased levels of cortisol without a lot of time to recover, especially if you're on at work for eight hours a day, that's a long time to be in a fight or flight mode. Our bodies aren't designed to handle that much stress. So I do think we'll be able to demonstrate some patterns and relationships between something that's considered as small as code switching on a lot of long-term health-related outcomes.
0: I think that's really... A, a really interesting takeaway is is exactly that is that it's not you know, if if you're an underrepresented person, you know, you already have to work, you know, twice as hard to get half as much right. You already have to work twice as hard to prove your seat at the table to prove that you're there. But then on top of that, you have to be thinking all of the time. How is what I'm doing perceived? How am I doing this the right way? Did i did I say something that, you know, was deemed this way or did I show up late and it was deemed that way? So it's this like double stress double work situation. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So, let's talk about solutions. What we can possibly do, you know, we we talked a little bit about hiring and getting the, you know, getting the workforce to not be so homogenous to fix the to the way that we think about culture itself. But what's the, the first step for a company that is looking to make their workplace more inclusive in and a workplace that doesn't kind of require this code switching of people, especially if you're a predominantly white culture that doesn't know that the people are having to code switch because you've never seen the switch take place?
1: My first recommendation would be for the senior leaders and anyone who's in a position of of leadership of managing others to think about the various ways that they are code switching at work. So although a lot of my work focuses on racial code switching, and I think that depth of code switching is certainly distinct and unique for Black people, for other people of color, white women to some extent, but everyone in some aspect of their life is masking or hiding some aspect of of themselves, especially at work. And I think that People in power doing it on a small level is also signaling to others that you all should be doing this in some way so so, one of the ways that I've seen some some senior white men code switch at work is not talking about I need to leave work early today because I actually have to go take care of my kids. Well, if you were more transparent about the fact that these working hours are not conducive to you being a good parent or being able to take care of other responsibilities and actually not just disclose that you are doing these things, but think about the policies that are in place of your company that might make it hard for people who are single parents, for women in particular who are in so, so many caregiving roles, you can actually start to shape this organization that's more mindful of your holistic identity at that level. Um, so, so thinking about the various ways that you as a senior leader might be code switching or not being truly honest and transparent about what you're not showing at work. I especially think this is true when we think about the age-related declines that some senior leaders are experiencing or will experience soon in the future. And and trying to create a workplace that is more amenable to all people, given that you are also going through changes. I think for managers too, there has to be some questioning of our company's culture. So asking your employees, how would you define this culture? And, And really trying to make sure that If your culture is one of inclusion and diversity, is that what your employees are actually experiencing? And I consider inclusion, someone being able to fully participate and contribute at their workplace, unencumbered by feeling that their differences is going to somehow decrease their opportunities or advantages, but that they can be their full authentic self and bring that contribution into the work that they do. So if your employees aren't experiencing that, then, then starting to think about not just how you're allocating work, but what type of message have you given to your consumers? I, I talk to a lot of companies who are in client-facing type of organizations, and they say, you know, I think we're training our employees to code switch in order to make sales, because most of our consumers are white, and they want to hear a familiar voice. <laughs> and so we tell our employees of color, you know, you might, here's a script, you need to do some training, et cetera. I said how can you flip that narrative and instead train your customers to say you're going to hear lots of different voices here and and we many voices same product or you know same buying into this mission or value of whatever it is this company's trying to achieve but how can we do more training and educating of people to to hear differences and not think threats or something that's unfamiliar therefore it makes me uncomfortable and I don't like it but how can we train listeners, viewers to see differences as a contribution to the type of work that we do. Of course, there also needs to be way more inclusive hiring promotion practices, really taking a look at your organizational processes with an equitable lens and trying to figure out how and why, again, are so many white men able to matriculate through this organization when we're not seeing the same for people of color. And my last tidbit for all organizations at this point, especially, I think, you know, this summer with the murder of George Floyd, a lot of organizations are starting to realize that racism is not just out there, but it's inside of the workplace as well. So how can we design an organization that acknowledges that racism exists here and we are actively trying to work against it instead of pretending that it doesn't exist and therefore we don't need to address it? an anti-racist organization first acknowledges that there is racism and, and we should be designing all of our systems and policies and practices, performance metrics with the idea in mind that racism exists. One of my favorite examples of this actually comes from my alma mater, University of Michigan. There was several years of training faculty on hiring committees On how we can decrease biases that exist within us. So, a three person hiring committee has to discuss each candidate in depth. And if at any time in the conversation, if someone says fit, they have to stop the conversation and go into a deep explanation to what do you mean by that? What do you mean when you say the word fit? Explain yourself over and over again until they get to the root, which is usually a, a stereotype or a bias that they have. And that practice has led to so many more hirings, that very small insertion that when we say the word fit, we have to be able to define what that means in concrete terms. Everyone in our company should know what we mean when we say that. They should know what we mean when we say inclusion. And not just what we mean, but how is it practiced? How is it observed? How is it measured? Are we holding our managers and senior leaders accountable for exhibiting inclusive behaviors? These these type of questions, right, are... Things that I think will help decrease me as an individual person of color feeling like unless I code switch, I will not receive rewards. That being said, code switching is a skill. It's, it's a way for us to figure out how to relate to other people that are different from us. And in my ideal world, an organization would recognize the strength and value of code switching and figure out ways to not require employees to do it, but give employees the agency if they choose to do it or not. But by not doing it, that is not penalizing them in any way. Um, but if they choose to do it, then how how is that just broadening their skill set and making them a more flexible, fluid, um, effective employee would be the question.
0: Wow. So you just said so much there that I almost just want to summarize it because I feel like there are a couple like really good takeaways there. So I'll start with the, your your last point of like, it's a skill. And that's something that I think that people maybe don't really think about because we're, you know, we're talking about this, like, how do we eliminate code switching? Well, yeah, we want to eliminate it in the the negative ways, but being able to code switch when you know, speaking to somebody from another country and and speaking to them in a way that makes them more comfortable or more able to understand what you're talking about, like that's a real valuable international relations, global economy skill for somebody to have. There's that. I love the part that you said about even just some tiny thing like what do we mean by fit? You know, we were talking about culture fit, but I think challenging you know when when we talk about challenging these issues it can seem really hard for a company like I don't know where to begin but beginning with something really small like that beginning with something really small like well what's your dress code who in your office wears jeans to work and who doesn't and why you know who feels comfortable doing that. So, the uh, you know, the other thing we're talking so much about what code switching looks like at work, but, you know, the kind of elephant in the room is that most of us have not been at work in almost a year. How does code switching and all of these issues manifest themselves in a
1: remote environment? We actually just finished collecting and writing up data on this topic. We had previously collected data with around 300 Black professionals summer of 2019 asking about their code switching behaviors. And we found that code switching was positively associated with feeling as if you have to be on guard at work, that if you let any piece of your cultural identity show that you were likely experience some form of discrimination. And that in turn was highly associated with burnout at work. So we were curious if we would notice that same pattern in a new remote work environment. So we surveyed employees around September 2020. This was about six months into the pandemic. And we only wanted to talk to people who were working from home because of the pandemic. We do know know, remote workers have always existed. And we were surprised to find that we replicated the same model. There's still this vigilance towards I might experience discrimination unless I code switch and code switching was still positively related to burnout. So we started looking at our open-ended data to try to see what is it about this new work environment that might lead people to still code switch when you're not physically in that same social environment. And a couple of things stood out to us from that data. One, a lot of people are working in companies where their managers require that they keep their cameras on throughout the workday. So there's this monitoring of your behavior and monitoring as a whole increases stress for all employees, but especially for employees who are already marginalized, underrepresented. Two, when the pandemic started, a lot of hair salons closed. And I know I, for one, it, it I hadn't gotten my hair done in maybe three months. I was terrified to turn on my camera with my mostly white colleagues, not sure how my not only natural hair, but unstyled natural mm-hmm. hair would be perceived by others. I already knew it was associated with lack of professionalism and, and competence. And now it might be heightened. And a lot of participants um, expressed that same fear that I haven't been able to clean myself up and look professional. The final thing that we noticed from this data is home life was actually where you turn the switch. Home life was a safe space where a lot of people felt they could be their authentic self in various ways. Now we have blurred work and home, where we are living at work, right? We are working from home. And this tiny video camera became a window into my private sacred space that not only where I psychologically feel like I should be able to turn the switch off, but also where I may have artwork on the walls that are really significant to my culture, but probably not well understood. other American cultures. Uh, so for instance, the figurines with bare chests, that's really common in the global South in a lot of those countries and cultures. And, and I know several friends and colleagues who have those in their house. And they were wondering, where do I put my camera? I don't want to show that. Uh, we've seen this with a lot of working women as well, who are parents, that they try to keep the mess away. Any sort of stereotypes that could signal they are a bad mother So I don't no mess can be in the camera. I mean, I think, you know,
0: another big I I, I think this is a a big problem for people of color and a big problem is, as you touch on for, for women with a lot of caregiving responsibilities is is you were able to compartmentalize and hide that part of your mm-hmm. life before, right? Like it's unprofessional to be a mother at work. It's unprofessional mm-hmm. to like, a lot of parents I've heard, you know, would not put up pictures of their kids at their desk in, in case that that made it that they looked seemed less serious about their job. Well, you right. can't really hide that when your kid hops into the Zoom camera. You know, it's the the same sort of, Being able to, you know, code switching when we're talking about it is so much, as you say, like hiding your true self Mm -hmm. at work and you can't hide your true self when you're at home and that the whole professional, you know, quote unquote, professional appearance, wearing makeup, you know, there's you think, I guess it kind of amplifies privilege, right? The people who were like, oh, working from home is great. I can just wear sweatpants and like not give, you know, not not care what I look like well, those are the people who are already in privilege. Anyways, the people, yes. who you know, have to care what they yes. look like. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. It's like, who has the privilege to look relaxed at work? <laughs> um, and the, la- the last thing I was going to say with that uh, on social media, a lot of people were talking about things that they were learning about their spouse, who, you know, if you don't work with your spouse, now you're both working together. And what I noticed with a lot of Black people and, and some other people of color is like, wow, my spouse really has a white person voice. I've never heard this voice before. I've never heard them joke like that before Um, because when they come home, they relax that standard. And and so people were noticing these unique things about their spouses, you know, when working together, which I thought was really interesting. Um, So in terms of like what managers need to do to make this remote work environment better, there's been, you know, several recommendations, but one of the ones I constantly question is to what extent does the camera need to be on?
0: A hundred percent.
1: Yes. Yes. I am always asking that question. It's <laughs> like, is it necessary? I'm I'm teaching right now in an online class. And I, I was thinking, you know, our country lacks digital broadband equity. I live in Ithaca, New York. Our rural area does not have great internet connectivity. If all of you who are living in the same dorm turn on your cameras at the same time, this, cl- this class will crash. Like, we just don't have the bandwidth to to be able to withstand that. And I know no, companies have been investing in their cybersecurity, their digital infrastructure, but nowhere in that is there this understanding of a human and what it means to be on camera all day. Um, I find myself staring at my own picture. Yes, I think
0: yeah, I think that's it. And there's there's actually been you know some some research that I've heard of of that it's so much different, you know, you're, you know, you're talking, you're talking about your professional appearance and thinking about how you look at work and thinking about how you sound at work, but you don't sit in a conference room with a mirror in front of yourself. You know, you you can perhaps forget your, your criticism of yourself a teeny bit in a regular work environment, but you can't when your picture is staring at you on the screen and, and the kind of how distracting that is. And I think, you know, also just for productivity, like, there's been a lot, you know, around being able to multitask, um, you know, especially for working parents. I will say that I have changed a diaper in a Zoom meeting, turning my camera off. I know, you know, being able to do other things, to go other places, to not worry about what your background looks like, as you talked about that, that having the camera on, I think is a, is a really big thing in remote work and, and freeing people up to normalizing having your camera
1: off. I think, yes. would be a big step. Yes. Like that. That's my primary recommendation mm-hmm. for now. Uh, but building an inclusive remote work strategy is certainly on my agenda. It's what what, what will that look like for lots of different groups? Um, but yeah, the camera, that's that's my sticking point right <laughs> there. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: well, you know, that's a, that's a great takeaway. Uh, I think, you know, you've, you've given a, so much for us to think about both in you know, the reasoning, why the historical context behind the the costs of and and some really easy, practical steps to move forward, because, you know, like I said, I think that a lot of people see issues like this and they are humongous issues. They're they're not something that gets solved overnight. But by taking small steps like, you know, analyzing what you mean when you say fit, you know, thinking about your dress codes, thinking about the, those sorts of things, normalizing more inclusive cultures, I think, can can help us begin to take steps forward here. Dr. McClooney,
1: I'd like to thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Kate, for having me. I'm so excited for your listeners to hear this.
0: Dr. Courtney McClooney is an assistant professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And also, I encourage you to go back in our feed and hear our episodes so far this season. We've talked about the so-called pipeline problem, tone policing, and the history of racial bias training. If you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen.